Chapter Two of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Two. I'm closing out my business, son, he told me the next morning. Here was another sharp surprise. I did not look at him as I asked, Why are you doing that, sir? It's a long story. Times have changed, and I'm getting old. Again I felt suddenly drawn to him. He was old, and no mistake. Why had I never known him till now? Look here, Dad. The last word still came awkwardly. Can't I possibly be any help down there? He shot an anxious look at me. Why, yes, glad to have you. I still have a young clerk, but I'd rather have you. Only one clerk? What had gone wrong with his business? But that day in his warehouse, which was empty now and silent, the mere ghost of what it had been, he seemed in no hurry to show me. On the contrary, he went back to the ledgers of his earliest years in business on the flimsy pretext of looking up certain figures and dates. He did not need me here. The work he gave me was absurd. I was simply taking the musty books from their piles in the closet and arranging them by years on the floor. To save time, he said. But he himself was still on that first ledger, stopping to talk, to ramble off from the pages before him. What did it mean? As the days wore on, and he still delayed, and at night that strange humility crept again into his eyes, with a slowly deepening suspense, I came to feel that instead of saving time, my father was trying to make it to go far back into his vigorous past for strength to meet his present, because he dreaded what he would find at the end of our work on these dusty books, the last grim figure in dollars and cents that would stand there as a result of his life as the stepping-stone for Sue's and mine. And that was why he wanted me here. This was his way of telling me the story of his business life, before I saw what lay at the end. And as in our work that story unfolded, though at times it cast its spell on me hard, revealing what a man he had been, there were other times when from somewhere deep inside of me a small selfish voice would ask, What is left? How much has he saved from the wreck? What is this going to mean to my life? In the ledgers his story was still alive. Yellow and dusty as they were, for me, day by day, they revivified that still odorous old warehouse until I saw it as it had been, a huge dim caravansary for the curious products of all the earth. And that trick of feeling a man, which I had learned in Paris, made me keenly sensitive now to this lonely old stranger by my side, with whom I was becoming acquainted. I could feel the pull of these books upon him, pulling him out of his cramped old age back to his glad, boundless youth. How suddenly spacious they became as he slowly turned the pages. Palm oil from Africa, cotton from Bombay, coffee from Arabia, pepper from Sumatra. Turn the page. Ivory from Zanzibar, salt from Cadiz, and wines from Bordeaux. Turn the page. Whale oil from the Arctic, iron from the Baltic, tortoise shell from the Fiji Islands, turn the page, India silks and rugs and shawls, indigo, spices, turn the page. 
I began to see the sails speed out along those starlit ocean roads. I began to feel the forces that had shaped my father's life. And little by little I saw in those days what not even my mother had understood, that in my father's business life there had been more than dollars, that what to us had seemed only a hobby, a dull, obstinate, fixed idea, had been for him a glorious vision, the white sails of American clippers dotting all the seven seas. So they were in the late fifties, when leaving the farm in Illinois he came at sixteen to New York and found a job as time clerk in one of the shipyards along the East River. They are all gone now, but then they were humming and teeming with work, and my young father was deeply excited. He told me of his first day here, when he stood on the deck of a ferry and watched three great clippers go out with a tide, bound for Calcutta. There were pictures of these vessels on the walls of his office, stately East India men bearing such names as Star of Empire, Daniel Webster, Ocean Monarch, Flying Cloud, ships known in every port of the world for their speed. He told how a British vessel, her topsails reefed in a gale of wind, would see a white tower of swelling canvas come out of the spray behind her, come booming, staggering, plunging by, a Yankee clipper under royals. Press of sail? No other nation knew what it meant. Our owners took big chances. It was no trade for nervous men. He found a harbor that welcomed young men, where cabin boys rose to be captains, and clerks became owners of hundreds of ships. To work, to rise, to own yards like these, build ships like these, and send them rushing on their courses out to all parts of the ocean world. This had been his vision at the time when it was bright and clear, and as now he made me feel it, the crude vital force that had been in his dream poured into me deep, made me feel how shut in and one-sided had been my own vision and standards of life gave me that profound surprise which many sons, I suppose, never have. My father was once young like me, wiry, straight, and tough like me, and as full of dreams of the things he would do. But then had come the Civil War. Although only nineteen when the war broke out, he was already the head clerk in his office. But like every other young fool those days, he said, I was caught by the noise of a brass band. Down south as a commissary clerk he found himself a tiny pawn in that gigantic game of graft which made fat fortunes in the north and cost tens of thousands of soldiers their lives. He himself took typhoid, and when the war was over he returned to New York, weak, penniless, to find his old work gone for the war, he said, had busted American shipping sky-high. Even before it began it had made the South so bitter that just for the sake of attacking the North the solid South in Congress had joined the damn fool Farmer West and attacked our mail subventions. No more of the nation's money, they said, for ship subsidies for New York and New England. And so all government protection of our shipping was withdrawn. And when the war ended with forty percent of our ships grabbed, sunk, or sold, it was ruination to build any more, for the British and German governments were pouring millions of dollars a year into the Cunard and the North German Lloyd, 
and we couldn't compete against them. Still, a few of the shipyards kept on, and in one of these at last I got a job at eight dollars a week. The war is over, we told ourselves, and the government can't stay blind forever. They'll see what they've done, and within a few months they'll go back to the old policy. Months? I stuck to that job and waited five years, and still no news from Washington. My boy, said a doddering Brooklynite, the nation has turned her face westward. Then he left the shipyards and went into a warehouse, where the work lay mainly in handling cargoes of foreign ships. And starting life all over again he tried to make up for lost time. The first year he was a shipping clerk, the second a bookkeeper, the third he kept two sets of books for two different docks, one by day and the other at night, and by forty he had become a part owner in the old warehouse in which he now sat grimly reading the record of his life of a long, stubborn, losing fight, for he stuck to his dream of Yankee sails. He married my mother when he was still young and full of hope. He must have been so much kindlier then and brighter, more human to live with. They bought that pleasant house of ours with its hospitable front door. My father's doddering Brooklynites seemed wonderful neighbors to his young wife, and so that front door waited for friends. As the years dragged on and they did not come, she blamed it all on the harbor. She saw what it was making him, jealous of every dollar and every hour spent at home. He worked all day and half the night. It took him into politics on countless trips to Washington, and she knew he spent thousands of dollars there in ways that were by no means fine. It made him morose and gloomy, a man of one idea, to be shunned and she no more saw behind all this than I did when I was a boy, for his vision was neither of pirates nor of bringing the heathen to Christ, but of imports and of exports. He dreamed in terms of battleships and of a mercantile marine. Each year he watched the chances grow, vast continents opening up to commerce with hints of such riches as staggered the mind. He saw the ocean world an arena into which rushed all nations but ours. Everyone but us, he said, had learned the big lesson that you can get nothing on land or sea unless you're ready to fight for it hard. He saw other nations get ready to fight. He watched them build huge navies and grant heavy subsidies to their fast-growing merchant fleets, send vessels by thousands over the seas. He saw their shipowners draw swiftly together in great corporations. Here was an age for immense adventures in this growing trade of the world. To wait, to hold on grimly, to keep up the fight at Washington for that miracle, protection which would start the boom, to see the shipping yards teeming again with the building of ships by the hundreds and thousands, to see them go out again over the seas with our flag at the mast and our sailors below to feel the new call go over the nation. Young men, come east and west, come out, the first place on the oceans can still be yours. This was my father's great idea. Ship subsidies and battleships, discriminating tariffs, what a religion! But it was his. Of the miracles these things would work my father was more sure than of a god in heaven for he had thought very little about a god, and all his life he had thought about this. 
for this he had spent at least half his wealth on the congressman that he despised. Bribery? Yes, but for a religion. Go all around South America and to the Far East, he told me, and you'll see the flags at sea of England, Germany, Austria, France, of Russia, Norway, Spain, Japan. But if you see the American flag, you'll see it waved by a little girl from the deck of a British liner. This means that we are losing in marine freights and foreign trade billions of dollars every year, and it means more and worse than that. For it's shipbuilding and ship sailing that take a nation's men out of their ruts, whip up their minds and imaginations, make them broad as the seven seas. And we've lost all that. We've thrown it away to breed a race of farmers, of factory hands and miners and anarchists and slums. We've built a nation of high finance and graft and a rising angry mob. But sooner or later, boy, this country will wake up to what it has done, and with our grip on both oceans and the blood we've still got in our veins, we'll reach out and take what is ours, as soon as we're ready to fight for it hard, the mastery of the ocean world. For this idea he had lived his life, for this he had neglected his business, for this he had lost favor with the usurping foreign ships, until his dock and his warehouse were often idle for weeks at a time. And the very bigness of things, the era of big companies, which at forty had thrilled him by the first signs of its coming, now crushed down upon his old age. Vaguely he knew that the harbor had changed, and that he was too old to change with it. An era no longer of human adventures for young men, but of financial adventures for mammoth corporations great foreign shipping companies combining in agreements with the American railroads to freeze out all the little men and take to themselves the whole port of New York. My father was one of these little men. The huge company to which he was selling owned the docks and warehouses for over two miles, and this was only a part of their holdings. Nothing without fighting. That had been his motto. And he had fought, and he had lost. And so in this new harbor of big companies my father was now closing out. Too late for any business here, too late for life up there in his home. He had kept my mother waiting too long. He was ready at last, but she was dead. Too late. He had been born too late, had dreamed his dream of sales too late, and now he was too late in dying there was nothing left to live for. How much better for him to be dead. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Weiss